Hey, it's not quite the DeLorean, but we're going back in time with a new podcast feed full of all my favorite interviews in the history of the Bill Simmons podcast. We're coming up on seven years now. I've had an unbelievable collection of athletes, celebrities, showrunners, directors, Matt Damon, Denzel Washington, Adam Sandler, Kevin Garnett, Shirley Theron, Tom Hanks, Bill Burr, Kevin Durant, Peyton Manning, The Undertaker, Eddie Vedder, Kyrie Irving. Yeah, he actually came on. Dave Grohl, Quavo, Barack Obama. I mean, what else can I tell you? I've had Al Pacino with Barry Levinson. I've had people like Steph Curry, Jason Bateman, John C. Riley, Jonah Hill. I could just, I could keep going and going. But wait, there's more. Whether it's your first time or you're planning on revisiting some of your favorites, make sure you head to BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Follow the Bill Simmons podcast, The Interviews, on Spotify now. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. All right, welcome in. Second episode of Off the Pike. Brian Barrett with you. And I'm going to introduce the metric man to the pod tonight. It's just basically something I like to do. A little statistical breakdown when the Red Sox are playing well. Tonight, obviously, they suck once again. So we get to get into this in terms of the negative territory with this team. And it started out in the first inning of this game. J.D. Martinez, obviously, right now, not the same player whatsoever. And we've seen it all season long. But we've also seen it with the Red Sox. They cannot hit in the first inning of games. On the season, they're 21st in first inning runs at 55, and tonight was another example. J.D. Martinez comes up after Rafael Devers singles off the monster, first and third, two outs, but J.D. in a 2-2 count flies out weakly in foul territory on a changeup that was out of the zone. It should be a full count, but instead J.D. fouls it off into foul territory, and J.D. Martinez again can't come through with runners in scoring position, and unfortunately, we've seen this with J.D. all season. 39 players have had 120 plate appearances with runners in scoring position. Out of that group, J.D.'s 37th at RBIs with 38. So that's been an issue all season long, but that's been established. The big thing tonight is Winkowski. This guy, as we've seen, he just fucking sucks. I mean, you look at the third inning tonight, and this is after you get a run to give yourself a one nothing lead against a really good Toronto team. What you need is a shutdown inning, and Winkowski cannot provide that, right? You think about it, Fam cannot make a play on... Unfortunately, he can't bail out Winkowski against the wall. He had to leave the game, so Fam goes down with an injury. But you look at it in terms of that's a 2-2 count. 
and Jackie Bradley Jr. doubles on a bad slider. Okay, so you shouldn't be throwing a slider to a left-handed hitter anyway. It makes no sense. He needs a curveball. He needs a better changeup. Doesn't have a curveball. Doesn't have a good changeup. Cannot get out lefties, right? So you think about it. This is Jackie Bradley Jr. who came into tonight hitting 208, which is 196th out of 216 hitters. We know that Jackie Bradley Jr. can't hit. I mean, thankfully, he got it done in the 2018 American League Championship Series, and we're all grateful for that. But Jackie Bradley Jr. is not a good hitter. Everybody knows this, and Winkowski can't even get him out. So after getting Springer to ground out, and then Vlad grounds out on a nice play by Rafael Devers, so you have two outs, man on second base, okay? Here come eight fucking runs. Eight runs! After you have one man on with two outs, Guriel, one-two count, brutal command by Winkowski, bell tie, bad slider, he singles. He walks Kirk. Okay, he walks Kirk. You have to be able to throw strikes. Winkowski can't even do that. Then Hernandez on a 3-0 two-seamer clobbers it 111 miles off the bat. It's 2-1. Then Bichette singles on a bad sinker middle in 95.2 miles per hour. It was a horrible pitch, right? Then he walks Chapman. He was ahead 1-2 of Chapman. He walks at a run to make it 3-1. So he threw back-to-back sliders off the plate, 2-2, two, 3-2, two, two, throws sliders off the plate. Just go after the guy, but that's the problem. Winkowski has no confidence in his stuff whatsoever, and how could you blame him? He goes out there on a routine basis and just gets rocked. So we'll get into what happened after the 3-1 lead because, as I told you, eight more runs would come in. But this has been the theme with Josh Winkowski all season long. The guy gets absolutely clobbered. Tonight, 12 batted balls, seven were hard hit. That's 58.3%. 49.5% is the worst in all of Major League Baseball for anybody that's faced 250 hitters. He was at 58.3% tonight. The Jays went 6 of 14. That's 429. The worst opponent's batting average for anybody that's faced 250 hitters is 349. So he's worse than that. He actually did shockingly get six swings and misses tonight, which is something you don't ordinarily see with Winkowski. Entering Tuesday's game, last seven starts. 675 ERA, 109 of 111 starters, minimum 30 innings during that stretch, 159 whip, 101st, 10.8% strikeout rate. That is dead last of the 111 pitchers during that stretch. He does not strike out anybody. He cannot miss a bat. So that brings you sort of to the bigger picture with Winkowski. On the season, he has a 15.8% whiff rate, and that's pretty simple to explain. Basically, how often is a guy whiffing when he swings at your pitches? That's 168th out of 168 pitchers, minimum 250 batters face. So nobody gets less swings and misses in all the Major League Baseball than Josh Winkowski. That's how bad this guy is. And here's the other thing. You look at it. Swings and misses in the zone. Entering tonight, 37. 165th out of 168 out of the zone 34 167th so nothing in the zone is good enough and nothing that he has in terms of his pitches is enticing enough to swing at to chase because his pitches are not good enough he's throwing sliders to left-handed hitters it just makes no sense whatsoever he entered the night with a 519 ERA on the season that's going to balloon up over 580 after tonight his slider is okay for righties. He can't throw it to lefties. He doesn't have anything to get lefties out. Lefties on the season now, 871 off this guy. Shohei Otani has an 872 OPS. So basically, any left-handed hitter that faces Josh Winkowski is Shohei Otani. 
Right-handed hitters have a 796 OPS. So basically, right-handed hitters are Dansby Swanson, who's going to get a big contract extension in the offseason or get a big deal from somebody else if he leaves Atlanta. His stuff isn't good enough. He's a pitcher two away from being a pitcher two away. He's not a major league pitcher right now, and they continue to trot this guy out there because they're dealing with injuries. And you start to think about it, too. He says some pretty dumb things. After the Yankees outing, in which he walked five, and he had three total swings and misses. So think about that. He gave up six earned, two bombs in five innings, five walks, three swings and misses. I'm not talking about three strikeouts. I'm talking about three swings and misses. Now, Aaron Judge and Anthony Rizzo didn't play in that game. He had this to say after, quote, I think Rizzo and Judge lengthened their lineup. I'm not going to say the guys they had in there today are bad by any means, but it just felt like another big league lineup to me. I don't know how he has the fucking balls to say something like this. Okay, last time out, he got clobbered by the Pirates, but he's saying that about the Yankees when he got hammered by those guys and they didn't have Aaron Judge and Anthony Rizzo in the lineup. So this has just been a continued theme with Josh Winkowski. He doesn't say the right thing after he gets shelled and he continues to get shelled. Okay, so that brings me back to how Winkowski got here. He was traded for Andrew Benintendi. He was part of that deal. The other guy in that deal is Franchi Cordero. Now, those were the two closest guys to the majors. I'll get to the minor league guys in a second here, but these are the two closest guys to being big leaguers, and neither one is a big leaguer. Franchi, early in this game tonight, down on three pitches, he fouled off a bunt, he swings through a changeup, and he looked at a fastball in the zone. You cannot have a worse at bat than that. He fouled off a bunt, and he looked at strike three that was right down the middle of the plate. What else do you think is going to happen? So when Kowski entering tonight, was negative 0.1 Fangraph's war, wins above replacement. You look at Franchi, he was at minus 0.8 Fangraph's war. That was 342nd out of 358 players. 33.9% strikeout rate, 348th out of 358. 210 average, 316th out of 358, right? And you look at it too, he's a liability defensively. Minus four defensive runs saved at first base. That was 39th of 43 players. Everyone below him had played at least 598 innings or more. Franchi was at 317, and he's in that kind of territory. He's made eight errors on the season, third most of any first baseman. The two guys that have made more than him have played 980 innings and over 1,000. Franchi has played 317. There's only two guys with more errors than him at first base. So that brings me back to this whole situation. You look at the wins above replacement for Winkowski and Franchi, minus 0.9. Okay, and those are the guys that were the big leaguers, essentially close to the big leaguers, that were traded for Andrew Benintendi. Almost a full win worse than a replacement player for those two guys. This past season, Benintendi's on the final year of his contract, I should say this season, final year of arbitration, 8.5 mil. Since the trade, he's 4.2 wins above replacement. So that's a 5.1 wins above replacement in terms of the differential between the two big leaguers you got for Benintendi and Benintendi himself. During that time, by the way, he's hitting 288, which is 14th in Major League Baseball over the past two seasons. But let's get to the trade itself. Benintendi played 14 games in 2020 because of an injury, the shortened season, but still, he only played in 14 games. The season prior to that in 19, he was coming off a down year, right? 266 he hit that year. His previous low was 271. 774 OPS, that was his career worst at that point. Remember, he bulked up. And his power numbers actually went down. He was doing that stupid-ass rock workout for some reason. It made no sense for a baseball player. Slugging percentage was down to 431. So this is why I point this out. 
I'm not saying Benintendi's a perfect baseball player by any means. That guy couldn't run the damn bases. He was atrocious as a base runner. But if you look at it, his value was at its nadir, right? That's coming off an injured season after a bad season. So from a value perspective, it didn't really make sense to move on from Benintendi then. This comes back to the whole high and bloom portion of the equation. It made no sense. Now, you do have Luis De La Rosa, who's an A-ball, but he's 20. He just turned 20. You got another guy that's 23 years old. So you're waiting on those guys to come back at some point. It's a move that didn't help the major league team. And then you look at just sort of this whole situation, and it's another move where you didn't get good value for a player and you moved on from a big league player. It just made no sense on so many different levels. And then you look at the bullpen tonight. I told you I'd get back to this. So in comes Austin Davis into a 3-1 game. Okay, bases loaded. So I'm not saying that you definitely need to get out of that, but there's two outs. He gives up a single to Biggio on a four-seamer middle-middle. Then he walked Jackie Bradley Jr., which you cannot walk Jackie Bradley Jr. I don't understand this. How do you walk Jackie Bradley Jr.? Just throw strikes. Odds are he's not going to do anything with it. Then Springer tripled, middle-middle four-seamer. Now, Ref Snyder did not help him out there. I mean, that was bad news Bears-esque. But it comes back to this whole situation. Davis is not a good relief pitcher. His whip is 161st out of 164 relievers or 164 relievers at 165. So then I looked at sort of a bigger picture with Hein Bloom, and we've critiqued him for other things, but he can't build a fucking bullpen. You look at the 2020 Red Sox where they punted on the season, they traded Mookie. I took that out of the equation. So if you just look at the last two seasons with Hein Bloom, 2021 and 2022, and you look at the bullpen ERA for the Boston Red Sox. Again, this is the Boston Red Sox. This isn't the Tampa Bay Rays' his old team. This isn't a bad organization or a cheap organization. This isn't the Baltimore Orioles. This is the Boston Red Sox. And his relievers over the past couple of years have a 422 ERA. That's 20th in baseball. During the Dombrowski era, that was at 375, which was six. The whip over the past couple of years, 136, 23rd. Dombrowski era, 129, 10th. Opponents batting average 239, 22nd. Dombrowski era 230, which was fifth in Major League Baseball. Not to mention they have 47 blown saves during the Bloom era, tied for the second most. And like I said, I'm taking out 2020, the season they punted. I'm just looking at the past two seasons that it's been this bad. And you start to look at it, it's a theme. He gets so many guys that can't throw strikes. Sal Moore, 11.4% walk rate this season, 140th out of 164 pitchers in terms of relievers. Davis, 11.5% walk rate. That's 146. Deekman, who we all know, Jake Walkman, as I like to call him, 18% walk rate. That is dead last in Major League Baseball. And the one thing that I look at in terms of the difference with Dombrowski and the difference with Heim Bloom is Dombrowski would pay for certainty. And quite frankly, the one thing I really liked about Dave Dombrowski is he'd tell you what he was going to do. He told us, hey, I need to sign a reliever and I need to get a starting pitcher. He got Chris Sale and he got Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell at the time, one of the best closers in the game. From 16 to 18, he was sixth in war among relievers. He was third in saves. He was second in strikeout rate. He was sixth in whip, and he was third in opponent's batting average. And you look at all these Red Sox teams that have won the World Series over the years. They all had a good closer. Keith Folk, Jonathan Papelbon, Koji, Kimbrell. And look, Kimbrell, granted, he struggled in the 18 postseason, but he still got you there with 42 saves, which is third in Major League Baseball. And after Matt Barnes signed his contract last year, he turned into a pumpkin. You really haven't had a closer since that point in time. And look, I tend to lean with analytics at times, but it's got to be very difficult for the manager to have to every game 
go by the matchups. That is going to be so irritating for Alex Cora. And you look at it the past couple of years, Braves win the World Series. They had Will Smith last year. Then they signed Kenley Jansen. The 2020 Dodgers had Kenley Jansen. 2019, Washington had two guys, Doolittle and Daniel Hudson, that could both do it. Houston in 2017 almost lost because their closer, Ken Giles, fell apart. And then you look at 2016, the Cubs traded for Chapman. 2015, the Royals had Wade Davis. If you're building a World Series team, it may seem like it's an old thing, but you need a closer, and the Red Sox have not had one for more than a year and a half, and that goes on high and bloom. Every night, the manager's got to do the matchup game, which is just unbecoming of a team like the Boston Red Sox. And the one other thing he messed up with the bullpen is the Whitlock situation. See, the Red Sox do have an elite relief pitcher. His name's Garrett Whitlock. The problem is the Red Sox screwed this guy up. You look at Whitlock, right? He went from April 19th to, to July 15th in terms of in-between relief outings. So basically, three months in-between relief outings, and he's one of the best relief pitchers in Major League Baseball. That's what is so irritating about this, right? And it took the Red Sox for Garrett Whitlock to go on the injured list before they put him back in the bullpen where he belongs. They did not put him in a situation where he could succeed. You look at him as a starter. 260 opponents batting average, 723 opponents OPS. He had a 415 ERA as a starter, which during that stretch, that was 74th out of 119 starters. So you took an uh, elite relief pitcher and you made him a starting pitcher for what reason? You put the guy in a position to fail second time through the order. He didn't know how to do it yet because he hadn't been doing it in a few years coming off the Tommy John when he was with the Yankees. Second time through the order, he was clobbered. 278 opponents batting average and an 839 opponents OPS. He was horrible. And look, I'm not telling you he can't be a starter long term, but it just didn't make any sense to do it at that particular point in time, right? Because you started the season with him in the bullpen. Okay. And then you had a weird situation with Tanner Houck, who couldn't pitch in Toronto because of the whole COVID situation, didn't get vaccinated. Okay. And then unfortunately, Rich Hill's father had passed away. So you needed somebody to make a spot start. Now, I would have just called up one of the kids in the minor leagues and made a spot start that way. Instead, they tried to do it with Garrett Whitlock. Okay, now the only idea or the only rationale behind this that they kept him in that long, because that's fine if he makes a spot start, even though I disagree with it. Why didn't the Red Sox after that say, you know what, let's put him back at the bullpen where he belongs when the other guys, the Rich Hills of the world come back? That would have made the most sense, but they didn't do that. And the only thing that makes sense to me is Whitlock signed a contract after the season started. And it was for four years and $18.75 million. Now, look, Whitlock, give the Red Sox credit for getting this guy in a good deal. I'm not trying to dispute Bloom for that, but it does seem uh, maybe a little bit shady that right after Whitlock signs that extension, which is definitely a relief pitcher, salary, not a salary for a starting pitcher, and then they put him to the rotation. It just seems a little bit fishy to me. And the other thing that so, sort of irritates me about this, he was a relief pitcher. You put him in the rotation. He gets injured. Okay. Tanner Houck, he was in the bullpen or he was a starter. Then he went in the bullpen and he got injured. So the pitchers that are getting injured on this team are switching up roles. Now, not all of them. I'm just pointing out two guys where it's happened to both of them. And if Whitlock doesn't get injured, does he ever go back to the bullpen? That's what irritates me about the whole situation where they flip-flopped with Whitlock. They flip and Houck's better in the bullpen to begin with. But if you were going to do this with Whitlock, they should have done it at the beginning of the season. But all in all, it's just another horrific game for the Red Sox. And it's the story that continues to happen 
with Heim Bloom in this organization where it just looks bad, and you're starting to look at it now, there's no hope for this team. And you wonder, Heim Bloom, this upcoming offseason, because I don't believe the Red Sox will try to move on from him now. They're going to give him this offseason. They're going to free up about $80 million in terms of the money. And then he's got to get Raphael Devers signed. Because if he doesn't get that done, then shit, he's got to be out of luck. I don't know how the ownership group could rationalize keeping him around if that's the case. All right, a lot more coming up, including we'll chat with Tommy Kern in just a little bit on the Pats and some Brady stuff as well. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, welcome back in. Joining us now from NBC Sports Boston, it's Tommy Curran. Tom, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you, and congratulations. I'm really, I, really happy for you. This will be great. I appreciate it. So, hey, let's start with the offense, of course. It's the big storyline of camp. And, Tom, I was really high on Kendrick Bourne coming into the season based on a lot of the stuff he did last year. Some of the advanced numbers were really good. So what has happened with Bourne in training camp? It's been strange, and I think part of it, Brian is attached to the fact that there is a new offense being implemented. And with that, there's a lot changing in the passing game. I don't think, and basically the upshot is he just hasn't seen the ball a lot in practices, but a lot of guys are going through that because you have only so many reps in 11 on 11, seven on seven. But what was kind of alarming was last week when the Panthers were in town, it was a Tuesday. They lined up for an 11 on 11 rep. And we had been reporting, boy, Boyne's just not seeing the ball a lot. He's not making a huge impact as he had earlier. First rep they were about to run, the official throws a flag, points at Bourne. Bourne is told to get off. And Belichick kind of basically says, if you're not ready to go, then don't come out here. <laughs> so it was an eyebrow raising, to say the least. Taekwondo Thornton comes in for him. And then during those kind of scrums off to the side, as they were starting to subside, you saw Kendrick Bourne square off with another Panther and throw a punch. So he got bounced out of practice. Then he's out there in practice the next day running with the twos, and then he doesn't play on Thursday. Excuse me, Friday. So I don't know if this is attached to Bourne having some agitation with other people reported with the, the offense change. That doesn't seem like it's in keeping with who he's been. But I'm with you. Guy caught 55 balls for 800 yards last year. He only had 15 balls incomplete in his direction. Zero drops. He was good after the catch. So. I'm a little bit dumbstruck as to how a player who is that good and the arrow is pointing up so much could level off. I still think he'll be fine. How's that? It felt all right. Good enough. It felt like the opposite with Aguilar coming into the season. Everybody was down on him based on the season he had a year ago. What have you noticed with him in camp? Obviously made the big play the other night in the game. Yeah, he's been better and better. He's been better and better. Um, and maybe a lot of that is attached to the fact they've had a little bit more time to press it downfield. But I do remember there were some struggles last year with Aguilar and Mac Jones seeing things the same way with Josh McDaniel's offense. So maybe this is an outgrowth as well of what they're trying to install. Some of the reads are easier. There's less telepathy necessary between quarterback and receiver, and that's having an impact on Aguilar. But he's definitely been an arrow up guy. 
Yeah, and Thornton, it felt like finally maybe the Patriots hit on an early receiver early on in the draft and everything was good coming out of training camp. And now you look at it, he's done for a while with that collarbone issue. Tom, how good was he looking in camp to you and how much of a role do you think they were planning on him having this year? I thought he would be a full-on apprentice, Brian. I didn't think that he would have any relevance and I was basing it on you know, the 20 years of observing and the learning curve that these guys have. But again, it ties back to this much scrutinized offensive change. If the offensive change is making it easier for guys like Tyquan Thornton to assimilate into the offense, well, then maybe the apprentice years aren't necessary because he most likely was not going to have one. What I liked about him was he's not just straight line fast. He did an excellent job of setting up his moves. What sucks about his injury, though, Brian, is the way it happened. because. All things being equal, that was a live to fight another play situation. Just go down, son. Everyone knows you're tough enough. But he kept fighting at 111 pounds or whatever he is, and he has five guys land on him. So it's it's a tough lesson learned, and it's a tough lesson that you try and teach that you would try and teach a young player that you know just give up on a play and go down because they don't want to do that. But he would have been better served just hitting the deck. Yeah, it's just unfortunate, too, because you know what's going to happen, Tom, is everybody's going to look at George Pickens, and because he's on the Steelers, he's probably going to have a nice couple of weeks to start the season, and then it's going to come back to, oh, Bill can't draft receivers, even with Thornton not being on the field. Feels that way, at least a little bit. Yeah, it's it's an opportunity, I think, for that to be said, but and then to see what the offense turns into in the interim when Thornton's not out there, it's, it's going to hurt. But I, I, I did like a lot about him in terms of his maturity, too and the poise and the way he approached things. He was not wide-eyed, diva-like, less, you know, feeling as if he arrived because he had some good practices. I really liked uh, his approach. And, and talking to Troy Brown, he really liked it too. So what do you make of the scheme change? Did you think it was necessary with McDaniels, of course, leaving for Las Vegas? Was this the time to do it? I suppose it was the time to do it. And if Bill Belichick believed that that was something that was holding back his offense from being easy to to teach and I think the biggest part of it Brian is when we look at draftable wide receivers or draftable skill position players or tight ends in the previous offense we have to look at it as okay it shrunk and shrunk and shrunk as the college offenses got more and more primitive and they get to New England and you're supposed to be telepathic with Tom Brady and you're supposed to do post-snap reads and understand the coverage and the leverage and every other thing. And these guys were basically just looking at the sidelines for pictures of Lucille Ball to get their route. <laughs> they had no concepts. So the Patriots' opportunities were reduced to fine guys. So if this offensive switch makes it easier for them, then yeah. I guess the, the second guess to it is, it was no secret that Josh McDaniels was going to be a head coaching candidate. And the Patriots didn't make a great effort to keep Josh McDaniels or any effort to keep Josh McDaniels from going to Las Vegas, even though he might have been interested in doing that or was interested in staying if he could have had the right situation. But it makes me think that Bill was like, okay, new broom sweeps clean. Tom's gone. Josh is going. I'm not going anywhere. We got a quarterback in his second year. Time to strip it down and make it a little easier for these guys. That's interesting, too, about McDaniels. So do you think if they tried to like what they did a couple of years ago when he was up for the job in Indy, if they tried to keep him, maybe more money, maybe a promise down the road that they would have actually or he would have actually considered staying? Yeah, I think he hoped to be able to hear from the crafts 
on whether or not they wanted him to stick around. I think that he entered into this offseason. Even in 2017, going into 2018, when he took the indie job, there were zero conversations with McDaniels prior to that flurry of activity that kept him. So everything is a very much a don't ask, don't tell succession plan with Belichick. McDaniels has five kids. He lived in Westwood. He would mm-hmm. have loved to have stayed here. He had a great relationship with Mac Jones. Now, like with Brady, I bet the McDaniels is now out of here in Las Vegas and going, this worked out perfectly. But in terms of whether or not he would have stayed, Brian, if there were entreaties made to make him give it a second thought, and that probably would have included, okay, we're going to have you be the head coach after Bill leaves, then he probably would have stayed if they could have guaranteed that. Well, that is fascinating. Uh, You had the article up this week at NBC Sports Boston about the succession plan or lack thereof with the Patriots. What do you think the plan is after Bill? Do you think they have anything in mind right now, or do you think that's going to come down to a Jonathan Kraft decision down the road? Yeah, My understanding is, from conversations I had in the spring with people who would know, is that it remains a don't ask, don't tell situation. (laughs) Bill has earned the right to author his own exit. There's not a scenario in which Bill Belichick, the perception is, will give two weeks notice and be out the door. There will be plenty of forethought. There will be plenty of announcement. That's the belief. As a result, there is no working plan right now. If the much-talked-about bus happened to strike Bill Belichick tomorrow, there would be a list of people, I was told, that, that would be on it. But right now, there's no definitive plan for a successor, which I think bears scrutiny because Josh McDaniels is a good coach. Gerard Mayo is a highly coveted guy, too. Will both of those guys end up someplace else? And the Patriots are now starting from the Bill O'Brien, Matt Patricia, Joe Judge coterie. Or does Bill even have a say, Brian? Mm. Do the Crafts say, okay, it's been a quarter century with Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. Maybe we want to kind of get away from the Bills. In some way. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense. The one thing I would say, Tom, is so how much do you think Mac Jones matters in that? So, of course, Bill Walsh, when he left, he left them with Steve Young as the quarterback. If Mac Jones continues to progress after what we saw in year one, do you think that could sway the ownership's decision to say, okay, well, Bill left us at a pretty good place with a quarterback. He should have more say in who replaces him down the road. In terms of, well, that's a good question. And then it depends on the relationship, I would think, Brian. You know, the, the intimations by Robert Kraft in 2021 about, look, our drafts haven't been good, and I, I've seen a more collaborative effort, and that's good because our drafts have stunk. Or in 2022, earlier this year in the owners' meetings, when he said, look, we've had a three-year drought in terms of playoff wins. I'm not happy about it. Does that stuff, and this interpersonal stuff feeds into everything. As much as people think it's dramatic and overwrought, it plays into everything with this team and it played into the Brady departure. Does Belichick eventually say, you know what? I've done a lot here and now you're going to start calling on my record like this. So that could inform whether or not Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft work together on a successor or how the succession plan happens. And again, you got an 80 year old owner and a 70 year old head coach. So while some people might think it's sacrilege and putting the cart ahead of the horse, we did the same thing with Brady and they still weren't ready. 
Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you thought the drama was gone now that Brady, of course, is gone and Bill's got his team back, but it seems like that's going to be a conversation down the road with Bill and the Crafts. So I want to get to Patricia real quickly, obviously, because this has been a major storyline. It seems, Tom, he was calling the plays the other game. So I wonder, why was Joe Judge calling some of the plays in the first preseason game if it appears Patricia's going to be the guy? Are they looking towards, like, after Patricia, Judge calls plays? I didn't really, what's the idea behind that? The apprenticeship, I think, would be, yeah, that ideally Joe Judge is going to, at some point, become the offensive coordinator. The upside to Patricia doing it now, Brian, is that all the logistics of being a play caller, Judge is completely unfamiliar with. Patricia has done it on the defensive side, so he understands, okay, here's the tempo of things, here's how the play calls have to work, here's what I do when there's an injury. At least he's got experience, vast experience, as a defensive play caller. So Judge is going to get up to speed, but Patricia seemingly will be doing it now. And it was interesting to hear Mac Jones' comments about Patricia the other night, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, he played for Saban and he's played for Bill Belichick, right? I mean, and he called Patricia what the most intelligent, one of the most intelligent people he's been around. That it was. Brilliant, Brilliant, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) That is crazy. I mean, what what have you made of Patricia so far? Does he seem like it's been okay with him calling the plays? Or what do you think of him so far in his new role? Well, if you base it on the preseason games, it's fine. But we both understand that those aren't game-planned situations. And those aren't necessarily situations where the Patriots are going to run the stuff that they're going to during the season. What we've seen in too many practices are, as I was saying, you know, aborted plays, things that didn't happen, um, the lack of protection, things that didn't look even anything like an offense that was assimilated by any of the players. But it has improved. So it's supposed to look shitty at the outset. It's not supposed to look that shitty. (laughs) Um, But they did improve quite a bit. And I think one thing about Patricia is, as quirky as he can be, and as tough to deal with as I sometimes found him in his first go around, he is making a diligent effort to, I think, be a little bit more diplomatic, less know it all And I think he was sometimes guilty of that when he was in Detroit. There are players who swear by him. I have rarely found a player on the Patriots. And I know there's Lions who couldn't stand him, but I've rarely found a player on the Patriots who said, you know, I really can't stand that, Patricia. It's the opposite. They love him. So he hasn't called you out for slouching yet in a post-game press conference or something along those lines like he did in Detroit? No, not yet. He actually gave me a compliment on a joke or something a, a week ago. He did get pissed at me once, like in 2016, when I asked him a question. It's a pretty negative, pretty, pretty negative question there, Tom. <laughs> oh, I mean, Jabal th- Sheard's not playing. What am I supposed to do? Say he's doing great? What's going on there? So that was that, was that conversation. <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, that was something when he was in Detroit. So is, is there been any trickle-down effect? Because we know he had been working with the offensive line. Of course, Billy Yates is there mm-hmm. as well. And there's some turnover there with the Shaq Mason traders. there been any issues with the offensive line now that Patricia's taken on a bigger role in terms of the play calling? I don't know if it's directly linked to Patricia, but the offensive line has probably been the most glaring deficiency that the team is experiencing right now. Cole Strange isn't a part of that problem, um, fortunately. David Andrews has probably had, you know, if you put him on the truth serum, he'd probably say, I've had a pretty average camp. I could do a lot better. So that's a center position. Left tackle, Trent Brown's been great. Yodney could just, third round pick from a few years ago, looked like he was going to wash out, has actually been okay. But guys like Justin Haran, who a couple of years ago as a sixth round pick was kind of capable, not very good. Mike Nwenu, 
who stands in for Shaq Mason, if they're going to start running some of this outside zone stuff, Bunwen was a huge guy. He's not that nimble. Mason was nimble. And then Isaiah Wynn has been really puzzling at right tackle. So, you know, three-fifths of the line has been not great. So Patricia splitting time with the offense. Billy Yates in his first year is, is kind of the head of the offensive line group. Dante Skarnecki is magic being gone. Having gone through Carmen Brasillo and Cole Popovich in the last couple of years, there's just a massive amount of turnover and a lot of guys elevating in that group who hadn't been on the front lines before. I mean, Ted Karras was, for as average as he could be, valuable to this team. He and Shaq Mason are gone. It's a big deal. It's been a big deal. And that's my biggest concern. Tom, and you've been the most dialed in with the Brady camp for a long time now. So it was interesting the other day watching UFC. Dana White comes out and says he had a deal done for Tom to go to the Raiders along with Gronk as well when they were doing that Gronk cast, whatever the hell that was that Gronk was doing. But anyway, so do you think that Tom would have preferred Las Vegas to Tampa? I mean, just from a team perspective, it seems like Tampa was the perfect fit. And that Raiders defense was atrocious that season as well. But what's your gauge on that? I'm not sure which the preference would have been, just given the statement of they decided to go with that Emmer bleeper, mother bleeper. <laughs> um, it sounded as if Brady felt jilted, and I'm guessing that was relative to Derek Carr. So Brady wanted to go to the Bay Area. He wanted to go to San Francisco. John Lynch said no on that. Um, obviously, there was interest in going to to Las Vegas to be up in that area. So to me. What's really interesting is the number of teams who in 2019 watched Brady and said he's done because of the guys. And, and I'm looking at him and saying he's tethered to a bunch of guys who really aren't that good anymore. It's James White, Julian Edelman, and Pray for Rain. But the Titans, the Dolphins, the Niners, the Raiders, all of them turn their nose up to the notion of Tom Brady joining them. And he's still pretty good. Although maybe Bill Belichick was onto something, Brian, with him kind of being a lot at this point. Yeah, well, and that brings us to the Tampa situation now. Obviously, he just got back with the team, but we all know everything that went on with the tampering, with the Miami Dolphins, and everything that was going on in the offseason with the retirement. Tom, are you getting any 2019 vibes to Tom with this Tampa team, or do you think he's going to be completely dialed in now that he's back there? Yeah, that's a really good observation and parallel that I hadn't drawn. There is... Certainly, I would think a uh, a sense that he's over it. You know, you retire for 40 days and then you come back and then the head coach quits and then you need 11 days off during training camp. And then you're going to come back and you have the swirl of controversy with the tampering. And I, one thing on the tampering that's interesting, the tamp the, the Dolphins tampering that happened in August I'm sure that went sideways up the Patriots' ta tailpipe. But anything that happened in March, including any of the, the Vegas stuff, you know, my understanding was the Crafts were not at all in a position where they were going to chase tampering charges because if Brady stayed here, they wanted him to have explored all options and not feel as if I got, you know, I, sh I should have done this or that. Um, but that's just an aside to, to, to fill that in. The, the August stuff was kind of ridiculous. But for Brady, yeah, it, it, you can't help but escape that feeling, Brian, that, you know, it's the last day of school. I didn't even yeah. bring my I didn't even bring my lunchbox, folks. It's, it's weird. 
Yeah. And Tom, just before I let you go, the other thing I just want to ask about the Dolphin situation is you look at some of these punishments the NFL has handed out and you think about a team that basically got caught tampering three different times, right? Twice mm -hmm. with Tom and once with Sean Payton. Were you surprised that there wasn't a biggest, a bigger punishment rather there with the draft picks than there was just the two picks? That's a good question. I think that given the the very slight punishments we've seen generally given down for tampering through the years. Um, this was pretty hard line relative to what we've seen, but the tampering was pretty hard line too. I mean, to do it before the season, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Um, so yeah, I, I hadn't reflected too much on just how much it was because I always think a first round pick is, is massive. You know, the fines are the fines. These guys have more money than they know what to do with anyway, but first round pick as we've seen here in new England, Look at all the picks that the Patriots could have used as first rounders. They could have definitely used that one in 2016 that they didn't have in a draft that they ended up getting four guys. So it's that's a whack. You lose a player that you would have had for five years. You can't, he can't play for you. That's a big deal to me. All right. That's Tommy Kern from NBC Sports Boston. Tom, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. And again, congratulations and best of luck. We'll, we'll be listening to you. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it, man. All right, coming up next, we'll talk some Celtics and introduce a new segment. All right, welcome back in. We're introducing a new segment tonight, the greatest Boston bet of the week. And our friends at FanDuel have Jason Tatum at plus 1,400 to win the MVP, which that's the seventh best odds. And of course, that comes at the time where we find out that Kevin Durant is actually going back to Brooklyn. So if you look at the MVP odds, he's behind Luka, Giannis, Embiid, Jokic, Durant, and Curry. And you can rule a couple of these guys out. Curry, 63 games two years ago, 64 last year. I know he's just coming off a championship, but Durant played 55 games last year. I can't imagine he plays enough. Luka, obviously, he's the favorite, and he's going to have a crazy season. I just wonder how good that Mavericks team is going to be. They're going to be good, but are they going to be sixth in the standings? Or are they going to be fifth in the standings? So Tatum's definitely a good play here. And if you look at it as well, you would think that Tatum's going to want to have a huge season after what transpired in the finals, where that final game... He was the sixth leading scorer in the game, and he was absolutely horrible from two-point territory in that series, 24 of 76, 31.6%. So I would expect that Tatum has a massive season. The Celtics are a wagon. They have continuity. Now you add a couple of guys, the Brogdons of the world, the Gallinari's of the world, but I don't think that affects anything in terms of Tatum. In fact, it helps him because now, unlike the finals, he has shooters to kick the ball out to. And if you just look at Tatum, the on-off numbers love him. You look at him last season, plus 732 on-off differential on the season in terms of the total number. That led the NBA. Jokic was at plus 637, and he was second. So Tatum was at 732. Same thing could be said about the offensive rating, 117.96 with him on the floor, 106.12 with him off the floor floor rather, plus 1184. The Celtics play in a ton of nationally televised games. 37, only two teams, we talked about this the other night, have more nationally televised games than the Celtics. So he's going to have plenty of opportunities on national TV. This team is going to win a shitload of games, and Tatum's going to be the best player on the team that in all likelihood is going to win the most games in the Eastern Conference, at the very least be in the top three in the Eastern Conference. And if you look at what he did last 17 games last year, the Celtics went 15-2, and two, and he found his shot. And I tend to believe the Tatum we saw at the end of the year, in terms of the end of the regular season, not in the finals, is the guy we're going to get for the majority of this season. 47% in terms of pull-up jump shots, 43.9% on pull-up threes in his final 15 games. And if you just look at that number in total, 
final 15 games of the season, or rather 17 games, there were 15 and two, shot 52% from the floor and 43.1%. I never understood why he was shooting the ball so poorly at the beginning of the season. And we've sort of seen this throughout Tatum's career. But I believe the guy that we saw at the end of last season is the guy we're going to see for the majority of this year. That's why I think he's a good bet to win the MVP of the NBA this year. All right. Well, we gave you guys the off the pike voicemail line last time. That number is 617-396-7172. Again, that number is 617-396-7172. So anytime you watch the Red Sox lose a game, you can certainly weigh in and put that out there. If you want to just rant about anything, or if you just have a question, feel free to call that number 617 617- three nine six seven one seven two six one seven three nine six seven one seven two we already got some calls so let's get to them josh habib jamaica plain boston it's nights like these where we think about malcolm brogdon being best player on the floor on certain nights Celtics are going to be awesome red Sox suck right now they suck all right. I, well, I definitely agree with the second part. The Red Sox suck. I mean, there's no disputing that. And the Brogdon thing I am excited about. Now, I understand they didn't have to pay a hefty price for him because he's coming off a bunch of injuries, but it would be nice to have a point guard that can run a pick and roll. And the the Celtics last year in the postseason, especially in the finals, had nobody that could run a fucking pick and roll besides Jason Tatum. Not to mention, this guy's an outstanding defender. He fits in perfectly with the ethos of the team. He feels like the perfect fit for this team. So I'm very excited about Brogdon. Hi, Brian. It's Jonathan from Brooklyn. I got to start with Nesson because I'm feeling very frustrated with the broadcast issues that they're having. I hate listening to Kevin Millar. He says some of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Not to mention the fact that you're leaving David Bryant out to dry with these guys. I like you. I like Eck, even though he's leaving. Kevin Millar, come on. He... He, he's only on MLB Network. I, I don't like him. Not to mention the fact, what are you about to do with this team? Because Evaldi's injured. What's new? Evaldi's always injured. Since he came back from his last injury, he hasn't been the same guy as fastball. Not Elise, not getting the swing and miss with his fastball. Instead of J- Josh Kowski, who never gets the swing and miss, if I showed him a swing and miss, he'd probably cry because it would look like a birthday gift. Because that's the only one he's gotten all year. The guy can't miss a bat. I don't know how, if that's the most frustrating I've ever been. I was screaming at my TV, please, please, can we get an out? Can we get an out? That third inning has to be the most frustrating moment of my Red Sox watching career. Not to mention the fact that Austin Davis comes in, and what does he do? Well, just what we expect him to do, absolutely blows. These guys don't have a lefty reliever. Matt Strom is your only reliever, and he just came back. Since August 1st, they have the worst opponent's batting average on lefty relievers in the MLB 30th, 29th is the Cincinnati Reds. Why are you being compared with Cincinnati Reds with the third highest payroll in baseball? Absolutely embarrassing. All right. Yeah. A couple of things, Jonathan. So to your first thing that you said, or in the middle of there, you said in your Red Sox watching career, I like how you labeled this as a career watching the Red Sox, because it feels like a career this season. The Millar point, I agree with you. He's talking about the most random things ever. I do not give a shit that Bo Bichette played tennis growing up. And I hate when he sings that stupid Kike song. Kike doesn't even like it, so stop singing it. And with Winkowski, he's afraid to throw strikes because he can't miss bats. You're completely right on that. He's the worst in Major League Baseball. at it. It's embarrassing at this particular point. Hi, Brian. Jason from Beverly, Mass. Love the Red Sox talk of the first episode of the show. My concern is what's the path for this team to be respectable again in 2023, 2024? The division's only getting tougher. Adley Rushman might be the next Carlton Fisk. We know the Blue Jays are loaded. Tampa Bay, they're going to get um, 
Glasnow back and uh, Wander Franco back. The Yankees are always going to be in the mix. The Red Sox, for the foreseeable future, two words, perennial losers. That's what High and Bloom has turned this team into. We're going to be mired in last place for years to come. Well, it's going to be up to High and Bloom because I don't see them moving on from after this year. So that means this offseason is completely on High. They're going to have a lot of money to work with because they obviously traded a lot of guys. A lot of guys are coming off the books. So it's going to be, can he land? If Bogarts is gone, can he land one of these premier shortstops? If Correa becomes available, Dansby Swanson, Trey Turner, all these guys. And then he's got to find another starting pitcher because, quite frankly, Evaldi's not going to be here and he's injured. They don't have enough in the rotation next season. Basically, he's going to have to rebuild this thing on the fly because the ownership group is all in on Heim, building for the long term. But here's the problem. He's got to start winning in the short term or it's going to affect the business model of the Fenway Sports Group. And that's when they're going to start to get pissed. All right. Great calls tonight. Remember, if you want to rant after a game, you can leave us a voicemail or if you're just frustrated about something else or you just have a question. 617-396-7172. Again, 617-396-7172. We'll be back on Thursday with the Ringer's own Kevin O'Connor for more on KD and the Celtics offseason. Thanks so much to Isaiah Blakely and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in about 48 hours. <laughs>